It has come to that time of year. The time of colours. Across the island, the first flickers appear like flames in every hue and shade. From air and earth, the colours burst forth, taking on extravagant and unexpected forms, or else presenting themselves where they previously were not. Of course, the other seasons have their colour. Winter has some. Spring has many. Even summer, although the latter's colours have been washed out and sun-damaged, the colours of haze and heat. But autumn at the bottom of the world is a statement that life is diverse and expressive, even if it's brief. That it is a beautiful, exuberant experience which we share for a short stint with colourful critters, artists and poets, the lot of them. Now I should explain for my Northern Hemisphere friends. First of all, you must recall we are descending into winter just as your land is awakening to the bright hopes and dreams of spring. We wish you well. May your summer this year allow you at least some of the rituals of freedom and friendship. But you also ought to know that Tasmanian autumns are not colourful in the way that your autumn or fall might have been. For us, there is none of the flush and flurry of deciduous species, not in our native trees at least, because all but one of the types of vegetation we have indigenous here are evergreen. So when I speak of sudden colour, I am not thinking of birches and beeches and maples and aspens and rowans and willows, all their leaves turning golden, apricot, copper, scarlet, chocolate shades, then stripping away, falling off. No. The leaves will take on subtly different tints, a bit bluer in the blackwoods, maybe greyer in the eucalypts. But the colour instead appears in curious ways, in all sorts of places, in the hidden corners and before your eyes. Around the time I first moved into this train carriage in the bush, a friend of mine gave me a pair of fluorescent yellow shorts. She was moving away, and I think she was doing that thing where you just offload your shit onto anyone else so that you don't have to pack it in your Hilux when you drive away, but I wear shorts most days, and this was a good pair for sporting activities, so I was grateful, even if the colour was garish and I could hardly wear them on formal occasions. The first time I took those shorts out for a spin, I was going to go for a run down the road, and I'd not taken five paces from the train when I stepped over a worm on the gravel track that leads to the main drag through the village in which I live. It was, I promise you, the exact shade of neon yellow as my shorts. Now, I had never seen this species of worm before, and I was immediately sure that it had felt some affinity with me as I decorated myself in its colour. Since then I've seen this worm around the forest not infrequently, but most often last autumn, when we were in lockdown. It was about my only companion, and almost every day I'd see the skinny, incandescent little blighter in another unexpected spot. Up on the ridge, in the verge of that gravel track, under the native cherries, out by the dunny. I named it Bulate 
which is the Tagalog word for worm. And it brightened up some of those gloomy, unsocial days of a year ago. Yet this was far from the only injection of yellow or gold in my world in those autumn weeks. This is the season for wasps to proliferate. European wasps. Aggressive invaders, yes, but even as they make a nuisance of themselves, I take a moment to appreciate their beautiful appearance. They shine like pieces of amber in the air. And then there is the fungi, which comes in every colour, form and texture, and seemingly on every square inch of the bush around me. But it's the yellow you notice first. The jelly fungi, the canary fungi, the slime mould, vivid, brilliant, bold yellows. Just what's needed as the days turn cold and dark. Compensation for the loss of summer's long evenings and open hours and adventures. In the rain, the gum trees around me will reveal secret colours in their skin. They are supposedly shades of white, cream, ash, maybe brown. But I have seen those dreary days in which they've decided to expose hints of orange and army green and peach pink where the bark has peeled away. Up in the mountains, there's a species of eucalyptus that gets called alpine yellow gum. Eucalyptus subcranulata. There may be nothing more beautiful in all the highlands than seeing these trees at this time of year. It's as though they are lovers, having torn the clothing from their chests to show their true colours, to express their deepest feelings. The shades of yellow in the trunks of these eucalypts is so intense that I can honestly tell you that sometimes, on exceedingly wet days in autumn, I have walked into a copse of them and felt that I have suddenly entered a hall lit with electricity. In the grey light, especially near dusk. It's like they glow. And this light and colour is more than enough to lift your spirits, even in the darkest of moments. This train carriage in which I live bears signs of age, and it's marked with the alterations of multiple intermittent occupants who have had a stint living here over the past 30 or so years. The renovations have been subtle for the most part, and the train carriage retains its distinct architecture. I think of the philosopher Gaston Bachelard, 
who wrote that any home is a nest for dreaming. I suggest that I instead live in a compartment for imaginary travels. One vestige of decoration that the carriage still carries is its paint job. It's a sort of oxidised red, the colour of laterite. Within the palette of the sclerophyll forest which surrounds it, the ochre shade stands out like dog's nuts. Have I ever seen a train shunt out of a station or slide by me at top speed in this race car colour, like that of a Ferrari? I don't reckon I have. I don't mind garish dress for myself, but I doubt that I'd have given this shack such a vibrant shade if I'd been the one to paint it. But perhaps I'd have been missing something. For despite the sense I get at living at such a brighter dress, like a boyhood blush, although thankfully the train has come to rest well and truly out of the sight of the villages nearby, and far enough from the road to be beyond view of passers-through as well. Perhaps there is a sympathetic aesthetic at work here, most noticeable in autumn. For on April 1st, as if by letter of commission, the Scarlet Robins returned. These beautiful birds travel down from the mountains at the onset of cold weather, and make my yard their habitat. Of course I see the male first, perched in the fork of a scrappy juvenile eucalypt. It has found its first vantage point, and my eye is drawn to its fierce red breast. It reminds me of religious pictures I've seen, portraits of Christ with his chest torn open to reveal a bloody heart aflame with compassion but the robin's black scalp and the white spot in the centre of its forehead like a third eye are no less intense. This is an ancient trio of colours, perhaps with a secret, sacred meaning. Whatever the case, it certainly suits the scarlet robin. His female companion is here too, shyer, smaller, subtler. She swoops a rapid loop, interested by the insects, and then she lands upon her own perch, the branch of a prickly box. Her chest has but a dab of crimson on it, but I am reminded that a well-known dye uses the juice of crushed bugs to produce the richness of such hues. It is best that we remember, sometimes, that beauty, like survival, can be a cruel affair. Akin to this pair, I too have moved seasonally in the past. It still seems to me the best way to live, or at least better than most. To respond to changes in conditions. To tolerate the occasional shake-up. To cultivate several lifestyles within the one existence. It's not so easy for us anymore. This train carriage goes nowhere and I take this moment to rest from periods of travel. But I will no doubt up stumps once more, like a wandering bird. It is in the nature of this island's rhythms. Humans have followed similar habits here for a long time, wintering somewhere different from where they spend their summers. The distinctness of the seasons encourages it. 
and in my dreamer's nest I conceive of roots that I might take. Mentally I pick out the fork of a tree from which I might survey the landscape and anticipate the future. I think of destinations. And I declare that when I do move from here, I shall dress vividly, adorned in the colour red. We are driven to Chartres on a hot day in late July, in the middle of a canicule or heat wave. And I'd been unwell, although I wasn't helping myself having earlier on scald chocolate milk in a supermarket car park in the countryside. But even still, walking into the cathedral that afternoon, I felt instantly healed by the stained glass windows. Millennia-old mythological images depicted in soothing, Therapeutic blue. Such glorious hues were conjured up by itinerant artists centuries ago. At insalubrious campsites on the limits of the medieval town, they stood over cauldrons like alchemists to create colours that would captivate and never fade. Their recipes were not recorded, and some have wondered since if it's not now impossible to recreate the saturated blue like the colour you find at a certain depth underwater. That perhaps these migrant workers of history once made blue miracles for these cathedrals. So we took our time in appreciating the beautiful Mary wearing her robe of silent, sacred blue. I suppose the faithful would say such a place brings healing to your spirit but I wondered how easily this cathedral would have been converted into a hospital ward as well. Lay me down in the thrall of all that blue, I thought. Let me bathe in it, and my belly will feel much better. My muscles will be comforted. My heart and lungs will be put right. It felt like being immersed in a sweet but melancholy cord, or in a pool of mysterious minerals or in the elixir of twilight. Blue. A common colour. The outfit of the open sky. And yet a colour that gives the impression of being most rare. Elusive. Impossible to reproduce. I'd observed a different beauty in blue in a museum half a continent away, in the middle of another heatwave. Some summers in Western and Central Asia I had walked the aisles of fascinating memories, perusing the objects that had been used by people who'd lived long before me and far away. 
in one poky little gallery beneath the Zagros Mountains. I was greeted by a guide with smiling eyes and a grave moustache. He looked as though he'd not had the chance to ply his trade for months. As if his museum had been forgotten, and I was the first client in a good while. So he showed off figurines made of clay, copper jewellery, and paintings of ochre. It was as though the inhabitants of that arid country had only ever seen the colour of dust. But at one cabinet I was introduced to a material that I had held for many years in my dreams. Lapis lazuli. The so-called stone of heaven. Which my guide told me had been extracted from mines in the ancient kingdom of Sogdia, not too far from where we were. They often buried great people with beads of precious blue, my guide had said. The specimens we saw in the case in front of us may have been laid out with a warlord 4,000 years before the present moment. Later the artists of Europe sought out this Sogdian stone and ground it down into pigments for their paint. Ultramarine, they called it. The colour from beyond the seas a shade their corner of the continent could not produce, an exoticness which was worth its great expense, which would lend their masterworks a hint of distant glamour. It was a fluke of geology, of course, just a metamorphic rock with excitable chemistry, chipped from seams by slave workers, probably, But for thousands and thousands of years, humans had been captivated by the intensity of the blue in lapis lazuli. It had seemed a gift from gods, a chance to see some special intention in the earth's substance. From beneath his bristles, my guide said that since the ancient words for sky and heaven were the same, and as the sky above the plateaus and steppes of Central Asia often contained a blue of the same richness as the stone, He suspected the ancient folks of believing that these were slivers of heaven. Perhaps there was a story, he said, in which heaven crashed into the world. Or perhaps this world used to be heaven, a shining blue nucleus over which all the other colours grew, the more complicated palette representing the chaos of creation, the emotions and behavioural inconstancy of all animals the clashing colours of greed and heartbreak, manipulation and warfare. We know these all too well around here, he said, and I thought I detected a grim smile beneath his bushy facial hair. In autumn I begin seeing fungi of exquisite blue growing from fallen timber in the bush around me. Some call them pixies' parasols, like little brollies for the fairies to shelter beneath when the rainfall comes down hard. These mushies never last for long. They come and go throughout the cooler season, then withdraw entirely, as shy as sprites. They remind me of the stone beads I saw in the glass case of that museum in Central Asia, extracted from a Neolithic tomb and it strikes me that if there was a way, I would ask to be buried some day with these beautiful, ephemeral, heaven mushrooms.
That night as I was sleeping on the roof of the cell, I dreamed that I was on the wing of a huge bird, which flew with me in the direction of Mecca, then made toward the Yemen, then eastwards, then went towards the south, and finally made a long flight towards the east, alighted in some dark and greenish country, and left me there. So wrote one ambitious and superstitious traveller of some centuries ago. I too know the attractiveness of destinations found in your dreams, as well as the pull of the colour green. And if you stretch your imagination only slightly, you might think that the great traveller's dream took him to my own island home, a dark and greenish country, at least partly made of fantasy. Certainly there are nights in which I have been far afield and found nothing more potent in dream or memory than certain symbols of flora in their various verdant shades. The fern curled over the tannin-stained creek, the glistening fur of moss-covered boulders in the morning, the matte green of a thicket of musk or myrtles, or the serrated, luminous sassafras leaves layered over each other in a sunlit forest, each one exuding a sweet green scent which may well give the air a greenish colour. I suspect that my friend Daniel was thinking of this sort of thing when he wrote, in a house built on exposed red earth under a blazing hot sky, a song for Tasmania that went, How green your glow from so far away. It's a poem that many expatriate Tasmanians will know well, even if they've not heard those exact words. We are fortunate to have this southern outpost, a bastion of rainforests, which withstand cool Antarctic winds and oceanic rainfall, and in such trying conditions produce not the monotonous landscape you might expect, but an intensely diverse crop of exuberantly living beings. Green delights in profuse forms, hundreds of species entwining and overlaying, interacting in strange and spontaneous ways. When I first heard Daniel's song, I thought of sphagnum moss, those soggy beds of incandescent green bog which squat on compacted tracks of dead fibrous matter. From a high vantage point you see sphagnum as you might see a coloured skylight upside down, Oh yes, it glows. The other opportunity you often have to appreciate its radiance is when you inadvertently step through it and slip into the heaving black mass of acidic peat below, and you find yourself straddling sphagnum, the pretty gleaming moss tickling your crotch. Research suggests that surrounding yourself in green is a good way to improve the experience of reading. I, at least, can attest that the books I have read on bushwalks are frequently the ones recalled with the most clarity. My backpack always has at least one book in it, sometimes three or four, and over the years I've read countless works in wild places, in green landscapes, and I am able to revisit the knolls, campsites and creeksides where I pulled out one or another piece of poetry or prose and had the text imprint itself upon my mind and memory. This is all the more so here at the train, which doubles as an improvised library 
with a couple thousand books stacked on every surface inside the carriage. So often I'm away from home for extended periods and return with scrambled thoughts. Yet as soon as I'm immersed in this bush, with its fresh air and clear space, its innumerable textures and shades of green, I'm able to concentrate. Here, the sentences I read are easily understood by my brain. Who can say how much responsibility the colour green can claim for making a kind of reading room of this shack in the forest? But there ought to be a correspondence between literature and vegetation. After all, the pages on which these writings are printed have been drawn from the timber and thus the grandeur of trees. Likewise, we should remember our own relationships with plants, and indeed, with green. The complex process of photosynthesis is as much a part of our personal existence as anything. From what I understand, living cells evolved from certain molecules by chance. Later came primitive coloured cells, and in turn these developed mechanisms for using the light energy they absorbed. The most significant method was that of the chlorophyll in green plants, which used this energy to build tissue and therefore grow. In doing so, it became the basis for life on Earth. And for our species to get about our business, for our own idiosyncratic mechanisms to work, we too need green plants converting carbon dioxide and water into carbohydrates and oxygen. So here at the train carriage, amidst this dark greenish country, I am in close contact with the colour that brings the most sustenance. I am connected with the long story of living, the song of being, which I sometimes think seems to go, how green your glow from so far away. She calls urgently to say that she saw a rainbow cloud. You know what I mean? You've seen them, right? It's like the clouds are floating along heavily laden and ready to burst with shards of bioluminescence, infected with the whole spectrum of colours. I put myself back in science class and imagine that the cloud has somehow formed itself into a perfect prism, redirecting light waves at different angles, spitting them out in seven coloured stripes. It is a season for rainbows. I see them on the drive home, seemingly pinned to the nearest mountain. I catch that waft of colours all over the valley and rising from a small waterfall that runs down a rounded sandstone chute. 
Autumn is a time for sun and rain to coalesce, to combine. A thin cloud carries water droplets in front of the sun and forms, in the right circumstances, iridescence. And a rainbow cloud floats before her eyes. Some of us are accused of seeing life in a more colourful manner than is warranted. A friend of mine, a painter of landscapes, was once reviewed badly. His scenery was too opalescent, kaleidoscopic, psychedelic. On the other hand, you will read that we witness too few colours. The analogy is that our vision is comparable to a person whose hearing is so limited that they can only hear a single octave on the piano. So there are great spans of colours invisible to us, measurable by our instruments perhaps, but to which our perceptive systems are blind. They catch the eyes of other creatures, ultraviolet, infrared. Perhaps my painter friend is just trying to glimpse this place as an insect might. I will report only what I see. In the very recent past, the sun went west, setting over a wedge-shaped bluff. On the mountaintop there was the first crust of autumn snow. Earlier in the day I'd seen it from a high vantage point. It was faintly blue, but then it turned mauve. The sky played with flame colours, sulphur through the saffron but now it's all swallowed whole by darkness. I accept this as an allegory of the season's change. I am not an insect, but nor am I a physicist. I guess I am a poet. And I suggest that autumn is a season of rainbows, ephemera. Am I right in sensing that it confers on us all a feeling of melancholy? wherever in the world we may be, whatever month that might reach us. An insect may be linked to iridescence, but what sort of critter lets itself get so obsessed with the invisible and ethereal, the impermanent and doomed to oblivion? We are heavily burdened with all sorts of concepts, thoughts and dreams of absence, of disappearance. We endure countless autumns, and yet tell a story that says the rainbow bends from some numinous realm, a promise of precarious survival. Like the light over that western bluff, there is the one native species of deciduous tree in the mountains. It makes a snare of wiry branches, and it is badly bent by the winds. Its leaves look like a type of pasta. On the grey cliffs of metamorphic rock, over the quartz plateaus and the shores of glacial lakes, this tree contrives for itself a spectacular coloured costume. It shines like a secret deposit of treasure. If you've ever seen a Tasmanian wilderness calendar and turned the page to April, you have seen the deciduous Nothophagus in action, its month of transition captured in printer's ink. 
like the wilderness photographers, I will make my sojourn to the mountains too. A southern pilgrimage. But instead I go specifically to feel the loss that seems to be always running through my fingers. It is only that they've stopped producing chlorophyll for a time, pressed pause on their photosynthesis, gone quiet till spring comes. But when soon all the yellow leaves are gone, I will have to try hard to silence the voice in my head that says, such changes are forever. <laughs>